Welcome to Engineers and Enthusiasts, the beginning of computers in the arts. I'm your host, Christopher J. Garcia. Load program. Three Minute Modernist is going on a hiatus for a while because I'd wanted to do a project on computers in the arts pretty much since the beginning. And yes, Three Minute Modernists have dealt with a lot of the work of computers used in art. But I want to explore a central question. And the question is very simple, is how do we get from engineers doing artworks in their spare time to everyone having access to the tools of art on the computer? And this is a big question. It's going to be a long-term project, yes. But there's a lot I want to sort of suss out. And the biggest thing I want to look at is how does the computer enable as well as hold back the arts as we understand them? And one of the ways I'm going to look at that is through the early sort of what I consider to be the first two phases. The start where it's engineers creating artwork because they love art and have spare time. And the second aspect is when established artists become aware of those tools and begin to incorporate them. And some of the names will be kind of familiar to longtime listeners of Three Minute Modernist and other things I've done. Names like Robert Rauschenberg, David Hockney, Harold Cohen, Lillian Schwartz. A large number of people who were creating artworks using computers, mostly pre-1970. That'll be a sort of a fudge factor there because there's some work that harkens back to that sort of aspect. But really it is the pre-adoption of computer-generated art into the mainstream of the art movement, which really 1970-75-ish, it's somewhere in there. Some would argue 1980. I could see that. But it is going to be a question of how we got to this new place. And I hope you'll stick around for it. At first, we're going to start with what I think will be three or four episodes on computer music. And to start with that, we have to go back to what may be the first computer to play music. That's Cyrac in Australia. In 1950, computers were pretty much custom jobs. The, really the earliest commercial computers that were sold in more than one go happened in 1950-51. And they were the Leo and then, of course, the Univac. Universally, computers in 1950 would have been large, almost entirely based on vacuum tubes, delay lines, technologies that we just don't see today. And they would have been super specialized. Only highly trained specialists would have actually been able to touch the computer. If you were a researcher or someone using a computer, you would write out your program. You would punch it to tape or to card, and then you would give it to someone to run the program, and then they would give you output. This is, of course, not ideal for the creation of artwork of any type, but that didn't mean people weren't creating art. And Australia's first computer ran its first program in November of 1949. And it was really not until 1950 that it was really operational. It was an electronic computer, and it was constructed by the Division of Radio Physics and designed by a guy named Trevor Percy and Mastin Beard. And if you look at it like this, and it's very strange to sort of think of it like this, when they were doing calculations, could only do maybe a thousand operations a second. 
I've seen some various numbers, but that one seems about right. But in 1951, Sirac did something very important that gets overlooked and also hyper-focused on. In June of 1951, the radiophysics lab at, in Sydney was going to be hosting a conference that was going to show the possibility of computing. And computer conferences date back to some of the first computers. Notably, you could pretty much call it a conference, the Moore School Lecture, during the construction and just after the construction of the ENIAC. Very important. Gave the first generation of computer pioneers hands-on time with the computer for the first time. What's incredible is just how interesting these early machines were. But what's even more incredible is how every time you need to demonstrate a computer, the thing that makes the most impact isn't running some nuclear simulation or... Okay, it's kind of cool, actually, when you do something like figuring out the interest on Manhattan Island, uh, purchased for, what, $24 worth of beads. Uh, they did that on Edward R. Murrow on See It Now uh, with the whirlwind. That was kind of fun. But most of the time, the demonstration is either a work of art, creating an image on a screen, a game, Space War, Tennis for Two, any number of games, or what they did here, music. And apparently the first song ever played for a public demonstration was the Colonel Bogey March. Colonel Bogey goes way back. As a song, it was written during World War I uh, by F.J. Ricketts, who was the Army Bandmaster. Later he went on to become the Royal Marines Director of Music. And the story goes that the idea of Colonel Bogey, which again goes way, way back, uh, began in the late 19th century. And he was sort of the imaginary standard opponent you were playing against in the a scoring system in the golf world. And even by the turn of the century, he was sort of the presiding ghost. He was the sort of overarching spirit. Think of Stan Lee in Marvel Comics or Johnny Wrestling or Johnny Baseball, any of that sort of big imaginary you're playing in their realm people. And of course, the term bogey, meaning one over par, you're playing against Colonel Bogey when you hit, you're hitting par. When you do a bogey, it means that you've let Colonel Bogey beat you. True? Yes. Now, what's interesting is choosing this meant they were choosing a widely known song. This is six years before Bridge Over the River Kwai. So that's, that's really key. But what happened is that that song became representative of the war in particular, particularly World War I where it started. But World War II, it was all over the place. What's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, is how the music that was played on Syrac was both lost and found. And this was not the only song that was written for it. There were about a dozen. Many of them have been redone because Syrac is the oldest surviving electronic digital computer. So the thing that is interesting is that they've actually had it running and then re... I guess the best way to put it is they, re, they remastered. They basically recorded them again, and good on them. They've done several very, very cool things with the Cyrac music. They put it all online. I'll put a link up to it. But the most interesting one is that there's actually an existing recording from its time in Melbourne 
where there's actually some environmental noise, which sort of gives you an idea of the realm in which they were working. Programmer Jeff Hill was the one that actually did the programming for Cirax Music. And this is the first known use of a digital computer, specifically a computer. And something that I should have said about this podcast earlier is that it's going to focus only on computers and their use. Not, I'm not going to do a lot of electronic music stuff, they'll probably be a little bit. Not a lot about synth, but about the use of computers. And for the most part, general purpose electronic digital computers. Now, Cyric had a speaker, and initially it was meant to be used as a diagnostic tool. It didn't have a display, for example. You could see a raw view of the bits in memory, but that's it. And you could send actually pulses from the bus directly to the speaker, which would allow you to see if there were issues going on there. Interesting note about the display, and we'll be talking about this a little later, is early on, several of the early electronic digital computers when they were first developed, they had a type of memory called Williams Kilburn tube, usually just called Williams tube, honestly. But uh, Freddie Williams and Tom Kilburn together created it. And it's really the first electronic digital storage system. And it's based around a CRT, just like an old TV. And you would actually see, because the phosphorus has a known decay cycle. So once you excite it with the beam, it slowly fades, and as long as you refresh it every X amount of time, you can store that bit. Someone realized, actually, that, well, you could see it. So if you knew where your memory locations were on that, the, screen, the face of that screen, you could do very simple graphics. Now, one of the fun ways to, that they sort of realized that there was what they called a blurt, and a loop of signals sent to the speaker would indicate that a program was done because there really wasn't a way to tell if a program was finished. And you really, with computers of this size and this expense, every minute it's not doing hardcore calculating work, you're losing money. Very key innovation was the ability to just have a computer sit around a while. Now, Jeff Hill was sort of a musician himself. He supposedly had perfect pitch, which is great. And anytime, this is the, the perfect example of why this podcast exists. Jeff Hill was an engineer, and he did a lot of the software work, but he also had a background in music. He was an engineer, and he was an enthusiast. And that combination is so key, because what that does is that allows not just the technical aspects to take over, but the entirety of that person to be a significant part of a project in the art space. Because as much money as you would lose if you weren't using the computer to do real work, Every computer had a massive amount of downtime for various reasons. 
usually because you only wanted to have one or two shifts a day. So Diffield programmed these, and he had an excuse. I imagine that the first one they did would have been the scale that we played earlier. And again, these are not recorded from the time. They are later. With Syriac, when it was working, they actually got it working and it plays out. That's great. This is super, super early. Again, dating back to 1951. And so he had the reason. He had to give a demonstration of the machine. And music is something so many people can actually lock onto. Now, even at its time, Syriac was seen as sort of, I wouldn't say rudimentary, but it wasn't considered the end-all be-all. In fact, a lot of folks saw it as the sort of the beginning of the road, not the end. That it was sort of, I wouldn't say a prototype, but a functioning, functional prototype of a more complex computer. Because at this time, people around the world were already thinking of computers as something that needed to be massively, massively everywhere. They just needed to be spread around. And as a part of that, plans, software, all of this were shared. Most famously, the von Neumann architecture of computers, a concept by John von Neumann, arguably the father of the electronic digital computer. But that concept, and even the plans individually, were shared around the world. This is cloning, and it's authorized cloning. I guess. Now, when we get to the sort of the next phase, we'll be looking at Bell Labs and CIRAC, which, by the way, stands for the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research Automatic Computer, is still around. You can still see it today. They still run it occasionally, I hear. But the real key to this entire idea of a computer playing music is the idea that there is time for a computer to play music. It is not just simply a computer being available that makes it possible to do music. It's making a computer available, having people who have an interest and the ability to use that computer to create music, and most importantly, a reason to do it. Demonstrations are a great reason that people have been doing creating art of all sorts and games because they are wonderful demonstration pieces. Syriac's work seems primitive today, but this is nearly 70 years ago. And it's not widely known because it was never actually recorded at the time. It's only in the later years that it has been. It's been known for a couple decades now. There is a very famous article, I think in 1995? No, oh, no, it's probably about 10 years later, probably in the early 2000s, that covered Syriac's important work that had been done yet. Yeah, 2005, a book called The Music of Syrax, Australia's First Computer Music, came out. The idea of computers making music would have been ridiculous at this point. Computers, I remember at this point there were probably less than 20 computers in the world. They were out there, but they were relatively little known. And Syrax being used to make computers seems nuts. But at the same time, it is 100% obvious that this is something that people can latch on to. Syrax didn't lead to computer music as we know it today. That happened largely because of groups like Bell Labs. But the idea of an engineer taking his time to use a computer to create music, that, that's the key to understanding what computers in the arts were in the very, very, very early days. And I think that's one of the things I'm going to focus on a lot on this podcast is how do we show that? How do we come to the understanding that we are in an era where computers are used entirely. Art, almost all art, requires computers in some way, shape, or form. Usually it's in the promotion or the sharing or the selling. But then, computers were never even considered, really. 
It wasn't until someone who lived in multiple worlds got time and a reason. Sirach didn't have a big influence, which is a shame, but it did do it super early. Almost certainly the first electronic digital computer to create music. But you'll also notice what the music was. If I read you the list of songs, there was, of course, Scale, The Colonel Bogey March, Auld Lang Syne, Thanks for the Memories, In Cellar Cool, Lucy Long, So Early in the Morning. It's not being created to create new music. At this point, it's not a composer's. It is, in fact, being coaxed into being a performer. And the expansion of the computer's use from being merely a performer or an instrument, you could say this is really an instrument, I guess, through to being a composer's tool and eventually actually a composer, there's a lot of different areas. But you had to start here. Because honestly, a computer as a musical instrument is a much easier thing than any of the rest of it. But you always got to start somewhere. Thanks for joining me on Engineers and Enthusiasts. I'm Chris Garcia. The music for this episode, the intro and the outro, were actually composed by me using NoteFlight. I'm going to switch it up occasionally, but I just like doing composing. I'm a silly guy, and I like weird little composition. The music inside the episode is all played by Sirac and is the reconstruction of the Jeff Hill pieces created in both Sydney and Melbourne on the Syrac originally in the 1950s. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be all about Bell Labs, John Pierce, the man who named the transistor, and a wonderful human being and a good science fiction writer. And the man he worked with very closely and a man I'll be talking about a lot throughout the entirety of this podcast, a gentleman by the name of Max Matthews, one of the sweetest humans who ever lived. So I hope you'll come on back. This is Engineers and Enthusiasts, a Klaus at Gunpoint family podcast on the 3-Minute Modernist Network. Thank you for listening.